I've got my buddy Michael Jackson with me, not the singer, as you've already heard. Michael, come share your brief testimony of how God worked in your life to move from a knower to a lover. You guys welcome my uh, teammate, Michael Jackson. He's my wingman. Hi, guys. Good morning. So, all right, let me start off with this. I grew up in a Christian home. How many of you guys have Christian parents? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. How many of you guys have gone to church for pretty much your whole life? Okay, all of you, same way. My dad is a music pastor, so I grew up in the church. I knew a lot of things, or so I thought, and then I went to college. Um, I thought I knew all of this great Bible knowledge and was just saturated with truth and was spending time in the Word and spending time, you know, being taught what it meant to be a Christian. And I I understood it. I thought I knew it really well. And then I went off to master's. And I went to master's university. Um, I just graduated in May, so I was there for four years. And my first year, I had a roommate. His name was DJ. And DJ was from inner city LA. DJ was very different than I was. I was from, I was from Houston, Texas. I was from North Houston, Texas in the suburbs. I was a suburb kid. My parents are Christians. My dad's a music pastor. I grew up in the church, spent all my time in church. You know, my friends were from the church. And so I come to Masters and I room with DJ. And DJ, DJ loved the Lord. Like, you know when you meet someone and you're like, wow, this person is like, like they really, really are on fire for the Lord. Like that was DJ. Like DJ just, he would be asking me questions. He'd come into the room at like 11 o'clock at night and he'd read his Bible for like an hour and a half and he'd wake up at 6 a.m. and read for another hour and a half and he'd be like singing and I'm over there trying to sleep and he's like over there like, and I'm like, stop singing. Like, but he just kept singing. Like he was, he, he loved the Lord and he was just on fire for the Lord and he was always asking me questions. He's like, Mike, what are you reading? What are you studying? What are you, you know, and I'm like, over here, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not really doing any of that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, Romans. He's like, what are you, what are you learning? Uh, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's good. Um, but I, you know, I didn't really know what was, I, I, didn't, I couldn't connect with him. Like, I was like, something's different about this guy and something that I don't understand, something that doesn't make sense to me. And so as I went throughout my year, uh, my first year of master's, my freshman year, I ran into lots of DJs. I ran into lots of them. I lived on the wing with 25 of them. And I was at school with about 1,000 of them, guys and girls. And I realized these kids, these, these young people are so much different than I am. They care about things. They care about the Lord in a different way than I ever have. And so that next summer, I went home. And I was home, and I was sitting on the front row of the of church like I had for 19 years of my life, and my pastor was just preaching a sermon. He was preaching a sermon on reformation versus regeneration, and he was saying, you know, you can reform your life, and you can look really good on the outside. You can even stand up here in this pulpit, and you can preach the word of God, but unless you love Christ, you don't know him. And I sat there on the front row like I had for 19 years, and I thought to myself, okay, why would me sitting in church for 19 years, going to a Christian college, having Christian parents, why would I think that that excuses me in some way, shape, or form from knowing, from having to love Christ, from having to love him? And, I, and he kept asking the question. He's like, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? And I was sitting there, and I was like, I don't know if I love Christ. I mean, I know about him, and I know about the Bible, and I know about theology, and I know all these other things, but I don't know if I love 
Christ. He's like, because if you don't know Christ, then you, if you don't love Christ, then you don't know him. And I was scared. I was like, okay, am I actually a believer? And so I ran home. My friends were like, hey, let's go play basketball in the gym. And I was like, no, 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 I got to go home. I got to figure out what's wrong with my life because there's something wrong. So I ran home and uh, I didn't literally run home. I drove home. Um, but I got home and I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I read C.J. Mahaney's The Cross-Centered Life, which is a great book. You should all read it, but it didn't help me. Um, I finished it and was like, <laughs> Maybe I, was like I was like, okay, great. I don't know what to do now. So I, I you know, the, the whole day I was just like worried about my salvation. The next evening I sat down and I went, okay, I got to figure this out. Cause I don't know if I'm a believer. I don't know if, if I love Christ. And so I thought all, I know that the book of John is about Christ. It's all about Christ. I, I didn't know that. So I was like, I'm going to read John. So I opened up the book of John. I was like, I'm going to read this book like someone who's never read it before. I'm just going to forget everything I've ever known about the book and see what it's all about. And I opened it, and I only got through the first 10 chapters. Because in those 15 minutes, the Lord took the scales off my eyes completely. And I sat there, and I realized I've never loved this man. I've never loved the God who came to earth to die for my sins so that I could have life. I've never loved him. I've been living this Christian life for myself and for those around me so they could look at me and say, look, at how, look how good a Christian he is. Look, he does all that good stuff. And so they'd praise me. That's what I wanted. I wanted all the praise. I want all the glory. But I never loved Christ and I never wanted to him, give him the glory. But right there, he took the scales off my eyes, showed me who his son was and that I'd never loved him. I identified with the Pharisees completely. I was like, I'm a hypocrite. I've been living in sin for years, not giving any of it up because I couldn't. I, I loved it. That was what I lived for. I lived for my sin. I lived for, I lived for pleasure, and I lived for the glory and the praise of man. But God was saying right in that moment, he was saying, listen, I sent my son, my most precious gift, so that you could have life and so that you could have life abundantly through him. And you're to give of yourself, you're to give of your life, and you're to love him. And so he, he changed my heart right in that moment. And, and I just remember the whole rest of the next day and from then on, just my thoughts were like, what would Jesus think of this? Like, how would Christ respond to my actions right now? And from then on, he absolutely changed my life. He changed my heart and I was baptized three weeks later and I went back to master's for my sophomore Junior and senior year, a completely different person. I wanted to spend time in the Word. I wanted to spend time with other believers talking about Scripture, talking about the things of the Lord and, and praising Him through song and chapel. And, and guys, I, I can tell you one thing that if you are going to go to a university and you're going to study and you're going to be surrounded by people that are going to influence you and they're going to influence you whether you like it or not, you're going to become like the people that you surround yourself with when you're at school. You want to be around people that are going to push you towards Christ. They're going to push you to love Christ. And at Masters, that's what we have, and that's what I experienced. I was pushed by my, my RD, my resident director. I was pushed, the guy in my dorm. I was pushed by my RAs. I was pushed by, by guys on my wing, by godly friends, and then by teachers in classrooms, most importantly. They pushed me to love Christ. They pushed me to, to know him and to care about him. And so I'm spending way too much time talking about this, but... This is, guys, this is, this, is, this, is your, this is your life. Like you are, Christ has, he's created you so that you can know him. So you can know him and so you can love him. 
He wants you to love him, and, he want, and he's given his son so that you can love him. And what you have to do is you have to love Christ. And you have to ask yourself, do I love Christ? Because you know, you know right now, sitting here right now, you know if you love Christ. You know if you really love him or if it's just something that you do on Sunday mornings and when you're in Bible class. You know if you love him or if you don't. So I'd ask you to examine yourself, to think about whether or not you do love Christ. And if you don't, then love him. Give your life for him. Serve him because he's the greatest joy you will ever have. He's the greatest joy you'll ever have. More than going to a Christian university, more than going to a Christian school, you know, being, growing up in a Christian home or whatever, what have you, Christ is the greatest joy and highest pleasure you can ever have and to live your life for him. So I'll leave you with that. I'm going to be in the back. I have a lot of stuff about the Master's University and can answer any of your questions you guys have if you want to know more about the school. Um, it's a phenomenal place to study and to go and learn and to be taught in whatever discipline. I was a pre-med major, so I wasn't a Bible major. I studied pre-med and I'm planning on going to med school. So yeah, there's a lot of different majors, but yeah, come talk to me if you have questions. But I want to leave you with that is do you love Christ? So thank you guys. Thank you, Michael. All right, I'm going to read the rest of this passage to kind of call it finished. And I'm going to highlight a couple of things. You got the foremost, verse 31, the second, the one connected to it. This is how you prove you love God, by demonstrating love not only for Him, but for others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other, notice the singular, commandment, greater than these, plural. All three go together. God, God alone, love me with all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this, and I'll finish with this. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher. This is the legal expert. You have truly stated, in other words, you're absolutely right, that he, referring to God, is one. And there is no one else besides him. You got that right. Verse 33, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much, watch this, more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. All of the religious effort and service you can render are not equal to that. It's exactly right. Now watch what Jesus says, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered, now my Bible, the New American Standard says intelligently. It literally means he used his head. He's thinking right. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Which is to say, you understand it, but you're still not in the kingdom. Because to get in the kingdom, you've got to receive a love from God in order to give love to God. Which is why I say, we love because, with First John, He first loved us. The secret to this is being loved, receiving love, and then giving love out of that love that you can't, can't imagine. Father, thank You for the time this morning. I know that this passage is so rich and thick with implication, and it's hard to accomplish all that we would desire, but I pray that seed thoughts of priority would have been planted today by which these young men and women can measure their life. They can define success today, tomorrow, next week, this year, 
Lord, as defined by the most important thing of all. Are you God alone? And are you loved like God deserves and desires? Lord, I pray that they'll not just be near the kingdom, but, but they'll be in it. And if they're not in it, they'd receive a love that allows them to experience it and display it. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the greatest love of all. In his name I pray, amen. 77% of our business students passed the uh, CPA. Isn't that good? 94% of our students who apply to graduate school get in. 95% of our pre-med students get into medical school. And I just say that as an encouragement to you, because I know when I was picking university, you know, I was wowed by the academic excellence when I went to Brown and Ron went to Brown. It was number four in the nation in terms of most popular, to, you know, if everybody wanted to go there. It was number one in the nation academically in 1976. So you get kind of caught up in that. My big thing is if you're going to go to college or university, go to a college and university that's not only going to academically equip you, but it's going to tell you the truth for the time, effort, and energy you put into it. Um, what I love about what we do is every class you go to is surrounded, saturated with, taught out of a worldview that is fundamentally, biblically, foundationally true. So if you're in a science class, you're going to hear creation, you're going to hear the Word of God, you're going to learn science, you're going to understand that evolution is a theory, not a law, and you're going to understand God's worldview through the academic category you're studying in. And I've come, I'm 58 years old, I've come to the place where I'm not willing to pay anybody to tell me anything that's not true. Even if you scholarship me for it, I have to sit through it. And so you want to go to a place where they tell you the truth. If you're paying for it, you really want them to tell you the truth. But if you're taking your time and energy, you want them to tell you the truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. And that's the great joy I have. And the other commercial I'll make is this. Whatever school you pick, make sure you pick one that cares not just about this part of you, your academic achievements, but this part of you. Because the most valuable part of you is your heart for God. And uh, one of the things that we, uh, we pr pursue and prioritize is the development of the heart of our students. And that's true, I'm telling you, from our grounds people all the way to the faculty, all the way to the administration. I'm the campus pastor. I'm a position of one. I have no boundaries and no authority. I go wherever I want. I influence whoever I need to influence. I'm all over the campus. And I can tell you it's a great joy to me, and I hope it's true at Nebraska Christian, that no matter who you're dealing with, they have a heart for you, a heart for God, and a concern to invest in your life. University, college life, should be the most significant, sanctifying season you ever experience. And what do I mean by that? It should be a time where you have, like no other, an unrivaled opportunity to grow up as a follower of Jesus because you've got every single factor and asset possible coming to bear on your life because that will define your life. Your friendships, maybe your marriage, your way of thinking, your priorities, your pursuits, all defined by the decisions you make often as a young adult in college. So just don't undervalue that. The average student who graduates from master's has a debt of $18,000, which is a used Honda, Michael tells me. Okay, so, you know, you, if you graduate with a debt of $18,000, if you have any kind of capacity at all, you can make that up, and that's a good investment. So just as a word of encouragement. All right, 2 Chronicles chapter 9. I've got about a half hour. 
So let me unpack one of the saddest figures in the Bible. My first message to you was measure your life, measure your success based on the true measure of success. This is a warning. This particular guy, this particular character is how to mess up potential success. I don't know if you have a yearbook. Do you have a yearbook here at Nebraska Christian where you do a yearbook, pictures, that kind of thing? Yep. Well, when I went to high school, we had a yearbook too, and part of the yearbook was most likely to succeed. And uh, in my high school, Ken Carter was voted the most likely to succeed. Ken Carter was our valedictorian. Ken Carter went to John Hopkins, John, John Hopkins University, and Ken Carter's a medical doctor today in southern New Jersey where I grew up. Most likely to succeed. Class voted. Ken did it as it's defined by uh, academic success and by professional success. I want you to be the evaluator, the prognosticator, the predictor about the guy we're going to study. And you tell me, is this guy likely to succeed? If you're going to measure his potential, you're going to call him most likely to succeed or not. Second Chronicles chapter 9, get a running start before you meet him. We're going to talk about his dad. Famous guy you would know biblically. Verse 22, 2 Chronicles, chapter 9. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver, gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. They were honoring him. This was their way of affirming his high station and great prestige. Verse 25, now Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And he was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River even to the land of the Philistines, which is all the way to the Mediterranean and as far as the border of Egypt. And the king made silver, precious metal silver, as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. And they were bringing horses for Solomon from Egypt and from all countries because that was a way of not only paying homage but increasing his strength. Verse 29, and the rest of the acts of Solomon from the first to the last are written in the records of Nathan the prophet. Verse 30, Solomon reigned 40 years in Jerusalem and all over Israel. And Solomon slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of his father David. Now here's our most likely candidate, do you think or not? And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. All right. Solomon's his dad, which makes who his granddad? Anybody know? David. So, Rehoboam is the guy that we're going to assess. Most likely to succeed or not. You'd have to say this guy ought to succeed. His dad's the wealthiest and wisest man in the known world. He wrote 1,005 songs, 3,000 proverbs, Solomon did. His palace in Lebanon, every piece of furniture was overlaid in gold. His wealth was unimaginable and unequaled. 
It just wasn't that he had a lot of stuff. He wasn't just the Bill Gates of the culture. He was the Bill Gates with the wisdom of God. He was skilled in the study of not just the things of God, but 1 Kings 4 says he was skilled with the study of animals, of trees. People would come to him from all over the known world. And if you came to his dinner table daily, listen to this. This is uh, Solomon, 1 Kings 4. He ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines. And his provision for one day was 90 gallons of fine flour, 180 gallons of meal, 23, or excuse me, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's his table ingredients. Every day. So many people would eat at his table, so abundant the provisions. I mean, he, he was wealthy beyond your imagination, and peace was enjoyed all over the land. Verse 25, 1 Kings 4, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his own vine and fig tree. It's a way of saying everybody has their own place, their own, their own uh, home. All the days of Solomon. And there was nothing lacking. Can you imagine being the leader of our country and being able to say that not only you're abundantly wealthy, but everybody in America has everything they need and an abundance was enjoyed by all and nobody lacked anything? I'd say that's a pretty successful reign. That's his dad. Do you think Solomon's son has the potential to be successful? I think. His dad thought that. You know what the name Rehoboam means in Hebrew? It means enlarger of the people. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew culture, really Middle Eastern culture, you often gave a name based on something that was true of either the child, like Edom, Red, or Esau, Harry. Um, you gave a child a name based on a circumstance, a situation, or an anticipation. You could give a child, like you had Ichabod, who, you know, the glory of God departed when the glory of God departed from the temple. And so he was given a name based on the situation. Um, sometimes parents gave their children name, the father particularly, based on anticipation, potential. Solomon gave Rehoboam his name. He named him enlarger of the people. Now let me tell you what that means. It means he will be greater than I am. He will enlarge. Wherever I left them, He will be bigger. He'll be better and bigger than I am. Be like uh, Steph Curry naming his child uh, Kobe Jordan LeBron Curry. This dude is going to be everything. He's going to be able to shoot it like I shoot it. Do everything like LeBron could do it. Have the game face of Jordan and have the athleticism of Kobe. He's going to be bigger than me. This is Solomon saying, my son, by name, I believe his potential is bigger than I am. And then you have the most glorious era that Israel ever knew. Okay, It's the golden age under Solomon. Everybody had everything they needed. So Israel's at its best when he comes to the throne. Solomon was the greatest when Rehoboam came to the throne. And then there's grandfather. There's David. 
you know, David, the, the man after God's own heart, that was his grandfather. Think of his heritage. He, uh, the stories he would have heard, the, just the dynamic stories of David, the giant killer, and courageous leader, and Philistine defeater, and inspired songwriter, David, man after God's own heart, God's poet, contagious, courageous. David was a hero in Israel. I'd call that a heritage. I call that a home run scenario. Rehoboam. Wouldn't you agree with me that if you're going to just look at the setup for this guy, you're going to call him most likely to succeed. This guy is on the path, the fast track, the express lane to success. He's a can't-miss candidate. He's a five-skill player. The possibilities unlimited. The sky is the limit. Solomon, the wisest and the wealthiest. David, the courageous God-fearer. The enlarger of the people, Rehoboam. Alright, let's see what the outcome of his life is. So we're going to start at the beginning, potential. And we're going to go now to the ending. And then we're going to back up and talk about what happened. So we talk about the possibilities, endless. Now look at the, let's look at the reality. Turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 12. So we're going to start with Rehoboam where he launches... Solomon's gone, Rehoboam ascends to the throne, and larger the people, bigger than Solomon, better, best. Look at the conclusion of his life. As recorded here in God's Word, 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 13. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem, and he reigned. And Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, so he started then, and he ruled for 17 years the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there, and his mother's name was Nama, the Ammonitess. Now look at the first few words of verse 14. And he did evil. First Kings says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now just look up for a minute. Possibilities, endless. Most likely to succeed. Reality, he did evil. He was a massive failure. Who said? God said. God's commentary on Rehoboam's life was not success, but failure. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the reason I like those words as a kind of a bottom line commentary is... If you read his story, and we don't have time to unpack it all, he was not as evil as Ahab was. He was not as selfish as Ahab was. He was not as wicked as Manasseh was. He was not as bad as he could have been. He was evil because he wasn't the man he should have been. And every one of us is going to have a summary sentence at the end of our life, and it's going to be a reality. It's God's commentary. It'll be accurate. It'll be infallible. It'll be unchangeable. It'll be irreversible. I've done a lot of funerals, and every funeral typically has something called the eulogy. Logos words, you is a prefix which means good words, speaking well of someone. People like to speak well of dead people. They should. But God's not going to speak well of people. He's going to speak reality about people. If God were giving your eulogy, it's going to be he did good or right in the sight of the Lord 
or he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was success, success in my eyes, or he or she was a failure in my eyes. It'll be a short sentence. It'll be a summary sentence. It'll be an unchangeable commentary. And at the end of his life, despite all of the endless possibility, the reality, he was not successful. He was a failure. So the question is, so why? What messed up his chance at success? And you might say, well, hey, hey, I know what happened. It's his, his compromising father. The problem with Rehoboam was his compromising father. He had a father that wasn't faithful. 1 Kings chapter 11. Remember, Solomon was given his wisdom from the Lord. Solomon was given his wealth from the Lord. Remember, yeah, Solomon, God, God met him personally. God, Solomon saw him and and God spoke to him and said, whatever you want. And he didn't want wealth and he didn't want power. He wanted wisdom to govern God's people. And God said, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you wealth. I'll give you more than you asked for. And, and, and the one thing I'm going to ask of you is that you don't marry foreign women, pagan wives, and you stay away from a collection of horses which would imply that you have power and your reliance is on yourself and not me. Now listen to what happened. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. So he was an equal opportunity lover. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons, you shall not associate with them. So this is what God had said to him. You shall not associate with them, neither shall you as they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods. So Solomon enjoyed great blessing from God, great wisdom from God, great wealth from God. God asked him not to do something, and instead he did that something. You know what that's called? A compromise. Solomon, it says, held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princes princesses, and 300 concubines, and the wives turned his heart away. And it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And Solomon went after Ashtoreth, that's a pagan goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, and Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. You know what I call that? A massive compromise. So here's Rehoboam with this great setup, and, and the end of his life commentary is he did evil, and it's fair to say, it's a reasonable probability, ah, the reason he had a problem was his dad. His dad compromised. His dad said one thing and did another. His dad enjoyed blessing from God and his dad abandoned God. Now some of you are going to sit here today with all the potential in the world and someday you may be inclined to blame the reason you didn't become what you should have been become is because your father wasn't the man he should have been. I've been with a lot of young people who tend to assign responsibility to a father who didn't deliver. Who was a hypocrite. Who was a compromiser. You could say that about Rehoboam. He had a compromising father. Or you might say he had an idolatrous mother. No, his problem wasn't his dad. His problem was his mom. Because his mom was an Ammonitess. You saw it in 2 Chronicles chapter 
12, verse 14, or at the end of 13. His mom was Nama, the Ammonitess. You remember hearing Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. Milcom was a pagan god that required the sacrifice of little children as a worship offering. Solomon did it. She did it. He saw it. Maybe the problem with Rehoboam was not his dad primarily, but his mom. His idolatrous mother who traded God for something not God. She she didn't live the Shema. She lived everything but the Shema. Maybe she saw, he saw his mother put something ahead of God, grossly ahead of God, perversely ahead of God, and then saw his father compromised because of his mother. Maybe that was his problem. Some of you are going to be inclined to say, my mom. I'd have been fine without my mom putting something ahead of me, something ahead of God. The reason I didn't fulfill my potential, the reason I didn't realize what God wanted me to be is because my dad was hypocritical. My mom was, was upside down in terms of priorities. She was idolatrous, which means putting something ahead of God who is only God. Maybe that's the problem. That's the probability. And it would be a fair one. Or you might say, Rehoboam might say, hey, it was my foolish friends. Because the backstory to Rehoboam, before we get to the end of his life, one of the key moments in his life is when he came to the throne, Jeroboam, who was the leader of the ten tribes of the north of Israel, who had been predicted to take over for Solomon. Solomon had betrayed God. God sent a prophet, said to Solomon, because you've been unfaithful to me, I'm going to tear the kingdom apart. Ten tribes are going to be taken away, and Jeroboam is going to be their leader because he was the popular figure in the north. Solomon took that seriously. Jeroboam fled for his life to Egypt. Rehoboam comes to the throne. Jeroboam comes back from Egypt and tries to negotiate with Rehoboam to say, hey, listen, if you will ease up on us, the taxes and the heavy work, we'll serve you. Your father was way too hard on us. If you'll back up, if you'll relax, if you'll treat us with honor and dignity, we'll serve you the rest of our days. My loyalty will be to you. Our people will serve you, those ten tribes. So Rehoboam, that's the question. Will you ease up or not? Will you be better than your father or won't you? Rehoboam seeks counsel. Let's pick up the story just quickly. Go back to chapter 10. Rehoboam went to Shechem, verse 1, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So Solomon's dead. He's 41. He's about to be king. And it came about when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's the Jeroboam we just talked about, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. You know why. That Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So they sent and summoned him, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam and all Israel came, that's the ten northern tribes, and they spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Return to me again in three days. So the people departed. So now this is the big decision point in Rehoboam's leadership life. Ease up or don't ease up. Verse 6, Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? So he's doing a good thing. He's seeking guidance and counsel from the elders. Verse 7, they spoke to him saying, if you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. That's counsel option A. 
But notice this, verse 8. He forsook the counsel of his elders which they had given him and consulted with, watch this, the young men who had grown up with him and served him. These are his friends. Verse 9, so he said to them, what counsel do you give me that we may answer the people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Verse 10, listen to his friends. And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. But this is what you should say to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now let me tell you what, that's a very crass, very rude, very unseemly comment, which basically is meant to say, your, Rehoboam saying to them, I'm more of a man than my father ever was. It's very rude. It's very arrogant. It's very crass. It's a, it's a crude comment. It's a rude comment. It's an arrogant comment. Now, this is his friends, the buddies he grew up with. Hey, you tell them I'm more of a man than my father ever was. You say it arrogantly. You say it crudely. You communicate that my dad's nothing compared to me. Verse 11, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. So they're rude, disrespectful, and now harsh. How did he come to this? And that's the choice he made. If we read on to this, the rest of the section, basically, he took the advice of these friends who grew up with him. He made it harder. And the consequence of that was the northern tribe says, see ya. We're not going to serve you. And he blew up the kingdom. So the ten tribes go north who became their leader, Jeroboam. Why did he make that decision? Because he had foolish friends. The reason he was not successful, in part, could be said it was his compromising father. That's a probability. How about an idolatrous mother? Or let's add to that, foolish friends. And listen, he that walks with the wise will be wise. The companion of fools will be destroyed. That's a biblical proverb. Your friends will define so much about who you become. I am where I am today in part because of the friends that I've picked and chosen throughout my life. It's why in Christian school and Christian college and university, you have a greater potential of having godly friends that will promote and pursue good decisions in your life. But I'll tell you what, you pick bad friends, you hang out with foolish, crude, crass, disrespectful, harsh people, you will be injured by their influence. It's undeniable that Rehoboam was influenced by his friends. The choice he made broke his kingdom. You could say he was not a success. He did evil because he had foolish friends, a compromising father, and an idolatrous mother. Fair? Yes, that's fair. You can read through his story, and it's not like his whole life was a bust. He made certain decisions that were positive, certain decisions that were negative. But I want you to go back to the verse we started with, and this is the big point I want to make today. Not started with, but actually focused on. Chapter 12, verse 14. Because I didn't finish the verse. I didn't finish it on purpose. Let's talk about the reality. The reality is he did evil. The probability is he did it for the reasons of the influencers in his life. 
But I want you to see what the bottom line was as it's recorded by God. Verse 14. The real reason. The underlining reality. Rehoboam did evil. Now watch this causal conjunction. Because. Not his compromising father. Not his idolatrous mother. Not his foolish friends. Watch the words. Because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. I want to leave you with one big thought before you get to talk with one another about loving with all you are. Making God, God alone. What's the chance you're going to be successful? And the reason the guy who could have been. You should be reading the Proverbs of Rehoboam. The Song of Songs, which was written by Solomon, it's basically his greatest hit. It's a love song. Should be Rehoboam's love song. And it's not. You don't have any Proverbs of Rehoboam. You don't have any significant influence of Rehoboam. His life was evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not set his heart. Now the word set means to resolve and commit. Some translations will say prepare your heart. It means to put yourself in a position. To committedly put yourself in a position to do something. Seek. Darash means to pursue. Relationally seek. I've been married 34 years. I was a student at Liberty University. There was a circular drive around the dorms. It was a jogging area. It was about a three-quarters of a mile, and students would jog it at night. I played football, basketball, and baseball. I don't run unless I have to, unless I have a ball in my hand or I'm trying to catch one. Jogging makes no sense to me. I am not a jogger. I'm a player. I'm a sprinter. Put it, give me a ball. Let me chase something. Let me hit something. Let me catch something. Let me shoot something. But don't make me run just to run. Well, there was this girl running around the circle, jogging. I became a jogger. <laughs> and I jogged to put myself in a position because I was seeking a relationship with this girl. And I jogged until I got that girl. And then I stopped jogging. <laughs> now you get that. You all get that. If you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to put yourself in a position and commit yourself to doing it so you can have a relationship with Him. Rehoboam's failure was the direct product that he didn't. He didn't put himself in a position to seek the Lord. He did not set his heart with a resolution to seek the Lord. He was a part-time, sometime, half-time guy with God. Matter of fact, if you look at over at verse 17 of chapter 11, talking about Rehoboam and the leadership that united with him, verse 17, chapter 11, just kind of a record of his leadership. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. Now watch this. For they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Out of a 17-year run, Three years were dedicated to following the ways of David and Solomon. The ways of God is really what that's saying. He was a three year out of 17 year 
seeker of God. Matter of fact, if you look at uh, verse 14, uh, all the priests and the Levites, all of the God guys came to serve Rehoboam because Jeroboam set up his own worship system, created his own place, his own worship ministry. So all the God guys, the true to God guys, came to the the southern kingdom and united with Rehoboam because he's at least worshiping the true God. Verse 14, and the Levites left their pasture lands. Verse 14, chapter 11. The Levites left their pasture lands and their property, came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. So they wouldn't let the true God guys, Jeroboam, northern tribe leader, wouldn't let the true God guys serve God. So they left. They left their houses. They left their pastures. They left everything to come to Jerusalem so they could worship God. Verse 15, and he set up priests, referring to Jeroboam, of his own for the high places, for the satyrs, and for the calves which he had made. So this is Jeroboam's kind of false religion. He fired the God guys, and he created his own worship team. Verse 16, and those from all the tribes of Israel, now watch this, who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel, followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. Let me tell you what that says. Seekers of God get in places where the worship of God takes place and they do whatever it takes. If I got to leave my houses, if I got to leave my land, the worship of God, the seeking of God is so important to me, I'm trading everything for that. I'm going to where that happens and I'm going to go to the places where people do that with me and support what is most important to me. You're in a Christian school. I hope you value this. This ought to be a place where you're supported in your pursuit of God. Keep yourself in a place. Even friendships that you make here at Nebraska Christian. Be with people who are seeking the God you need to be seeking to be successful in the ways that really matter. Don't waste your potential. Don't be a crying shame. Rehoboam is a tragedy of the highest order. Could have been, wasn't. Why? He didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. He didn't put himself in a position. He didn't proactively pursue. And he didn't stay there when he got there. He was a three-year guy out of 17. That's not a high percentage. Don't mess up your success. Set your heart. Maybe do it today. Not maybe. You should do it today. I don't want my life to be a bust. I don't want to miss on the things that matter the most. I'm going to set my heart to seek the Lord. I tell people that anybody will listen to me. Love God by taking time daily for God alone. My wife seems to think that if I love her, I'll take time for her alone. That's not an unfair proposition or assumption. Because when you love somebody, you want to spend time with them. Set your heart to seek the Lord. I'm going to read a little illustration to you I like. I think it's an encouragement that may be helpful. I read this and laughed, and maybe you'll laugh, but I think it's a unique little commentary. You see all the things we didn't study today. Japanese researcher. It's my closing illustration. Then you can chat about what we've talked about. Japanese researcher, Dr. Fumio Sato from Japan. Researcher on an albatross and the function of albatrosses and their infatuation with one of 100 decoys that he put on 
the Itsu Islands in the Pacific. So Dr. Fumio Sata put out albatross decoys, and his observations had to do with the way real birds got infatuated with fake birds. And how he could both attract them and keep them. And he, he's referring to one particular bird called Deco, D-E-K-O, a five-year-old albatross who for two years tried to woo a wooden decoy. He built fancy nests. He fought off rival suitors. He spent his days faithfully by her wooden side. Dr. Sato's statement about Deco he seems to have no desire to date real birds. And you laugh. You did what I did. But think of it. This is a bird who's chasing something that's not a bird. This is someone seeking a decoy instead of something real. And yes, we laugh, but here's something sad. Some of us are seeking and courting the decoy of the world and we're missing what's really real, which is a relationship with the real God and the real blessing of knowing someone who loves us like no other who will love back. You can't out-love God. Don't be distracted by things that are not able to give what you long for. Father, thank you for this time. I, I know it's been a full morning and I pray that things that will be helpful to these young men and women will be planted in their heart that they will not waste their potential. They'll not mess up their chance for success in the things that matter the most as defined by you. That they will set their heart to seek the Lord. They will put themselves in a position with people who desire it too. And they'll resolve to stay there. All on, all in, all out for your glory. I pray for this school and those that are in it. That at the end of their days, the commentary, the epitaph, the reality as defined by you is they did good in the sight of the Lord. They are faithful and true. They loved well, and they lived well. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.